my wife, she basically said, you have six months of playing with this thing. If you don't find money, you go and get a job. <laughs> so, so that was the first uh, step. Basically, you had concrete thing you have to accomplish, right? You have a very clear. Um, the second thing is I didn't have the courage to do it alone. So there was a guy that I worked with a few times in the past. Um, his name is Ariel Milstein, and we founded the company together. So I basically, I convinced him to join, and we founded the company together. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Benny Buller is founder of Velo3D. Velo3D is a metal 3D printing technology company that recently went public. The company unlocks true design freedom and enables customers in areas such as space exploration, aviation, power generation, and energy to innovate the future in their respective industries. It's really cool the things they are involved with. Using Velo3D, these customers can now build mission-critical metal parts that were previously impossible to manufacture. Benny has a super interesting story. From his days at university studying physics and applied physics, his work in the military was an opportunity to apply his own knowledge on incredibly important tasks at a super young age. You can sense his passion for what he does and what he's built at Velo3D in this interview. It's a fascinating new world in the 3D printing industry, and Benny is at the front of it. I began my conversation with him, asking if growing up, he ever thought he'd be an entrepreneur and one day build a company like Velo3D. I grew up in Israel, and um, my dad actually had started his own company. And, uh, and my dad uh, is a physicist as well. And uh, I probably got into physics somewhat inspired uh, by him, kind of physics and math, uh, someone through friends. So, um, but uh, I actually had a very deep interest in theoretical physics when I was young and always was sure that I will uh, be uh, working in theoretical physics all my life. And the person that is responsible for diverting me from this path is my wife. <laughs> and uh, she basically said, you'll have to make a choice between uh, wife and life. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so she basically kind of got me to thinking about more practical uh, things. And uh, while I was an uh, undergraduate, I basically got into applied physics and optics and kind of got into it and uh, never looked back. I really loved it. Yeah. And then I know, you know, growing up in Israel and having to be in the army there, were you able to apply what you learned at university and then also most likely learn more in terms of physics yeah. while you were in the military? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'll actually connect the two things together right? and in, with your first question about, you know, the entrepreneurship. So I went on a program that is called the, the Academic Reserve in Israel, where people, instead of going and serving in the army, they first go and study and then they go and they serve in the army. But they, they would serve in the army in their profession 
not three years, but rather typically six years, five or six mm. years. And uh, so I went to the academic reserve uh, as a, studying physics and math. As I was studying uh, in the university, I started to think about where am I going to go in the army? What am I going to do in the army? And I started to do a little bit of research and inquiry about that. And I found that basically most of the jobs people do in the army in their profession is are very tedious, right? They're not super exciting. Uh, there is one unit, though, that was doing a really, really exciting stuff, that the technology unit of the intelligence. And uh, I started to see what these guys exactly do, which was very difficult because they were very secret. Uh, but I was able to connect bits and pieces, and I realized that they hire only one physicist every year. So draft only one physicist every year. And what they do is with this physicist, they do something that has to do with optics and electro-optics and stuff like that, optoelectronics. So I figured I'm going to trick the system. And while I was in undergrad studying physics, I uh, also did a graduate studies in applied a master's in uh, applied physics at the same time. And I was wise enough actually to complete both degrees at the same time. So when I went to the interview and I told them that, that I'm doing that, they said, okay, fine, uh, you can come here. We definitely want you, but you'll have to sign extra year. And I said, why do I have to sign extra year? And they said, because you are studying masters and people that study masters sign another year. I said, but I am not asking you to prolong my studies. I'm doing that <laughs> at the same time. Why do I have to sign an extra year? So, okay, you don't have to just come and join us now. So, but I didn't finish my studies. So I said, okay, we'll just take you as is. No, <laughs> no strings attached. And the, the thing that actually strikes me today retrospectively, I have to say, I didn't think about this that much then. I was 19 years old when I cooked this, right? And so I had kind of the maturity to go figure out, make a plan, and then negotiate with the army. And uh, and it will work, work out uh, perfectly. I also actually negotiated with my advisor because I basically had to finish my thesis in like about four months. And when I told him uh, that I'm kind of going to finish in a in, in few months, he's like, no, you're not. I need you to do all that. He was just starting in the university and said, look, the whole thing was just for me to get into the unit. Now that I get into the unit, I couldn't care less about my master's. <laughs> so if, if you don't want, I'll just leave and go. <laughs> so, so that was an exercise in Israeli diplomacy. <laughs> that, I love that, that exactly. That, that, that worked. But really, the unit that I worked with was the entrepreneurial place that you know that you referred to. So basically, it was a place that was run by kids. So uh, I was I joined there when I was 22 years old. The average age there was like 24, 25. People left there when we were 26, 27 years old. The commander of the unit was maybe 35, 38 hmm. years old. It was a fantastic place with very talented people, the most talented group of people that you could meet. Some A lot of real geniuses going around uh, real experts in their fields. And we basically were assigned Mission Impossible projects that were super valuable for the kind of Israeli security doctrine. And uh, we executed on those projects, delivered, in the, the, the systems were installed. We got a very often National Security Award from the President of Israel. I got one. And basically, every year people left the army and then they thought, what did we learn in the army that we can apply in the civilian world? And they started companies that were based on things that they did in the army, but they figured how to apply that in the commercial world. And if you look at the Israeli startup and entrepreneurial environment in the 90s, this was the incubator. So there were two units, this my unit and the other intelligence unit. 
So my unit was responsible for the system that bring the intelligence to Israel. The other unit was responsible for crunching this intelligence and getting useful data from that. So those units, those two units are basically the units that incubated the Israeli yeah. startup ecosystem and kind of a startup nation. And everyone in this unit knew that when they are done, they have to go and start the company. And if you didn't, it's like something was wrong about you. In my case, I, by the time I was done, um, I had two children. <laughs> <laughs> it's my wife again. <laughs> no Another choice. You. No startup for you. It's too risky. And then my startup, I started when my, the kids kind of started to get grown up and move away from the home. Yeah, it reminds me, there's uh, a guy I had on the show, Todd McKinnon, who started a big tech company called Okta. And he had this great job at Salesforce. And he had to put a PowerPoint presentation together for his wife to convince her to let him leave his job at Salesforce to go start this company, which is now on like the NASDAQ. And, and it's, it's amazing. I actually saw the presentation. I think I, oh, this, is very this is a very famous story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyone uh, out there who uh, is trying to convince their wife at this point, uh, they should pull that up. But for you and coming out of that environment, I can only imagine similar to MIT, let's say here in the U S or the, the, the intelligence, the people you were around, was there anything that you took from those people, be it personality wise, or was it that they were just so smart that it was hard to take something from them? But was there something you got that you felt you could go build a business? Yeah, for sure. So, so there's, I, I can say that, you know, I was molded in this unit together with all the other people that were in this unit. This unit really molded us. And, uh, and uh, there are a few things. So first, like the slogan of this company, the motto of this unit was translated freely to English, knowledge, will, and dedication will make the impossible possible. And we basically, every project that we started with, when you start on that, you look, that's impossible. There's no way to do that. But then when you start looking into this and you start thinking and really smart people start brainstorming, it's like, oh, sure, you know, you can do that and maybe you can do that and you can reframe how you think about the problem. And you always learn really that there is always another way to think about problems and to reframe them that they become solvable. So that was one uh, big learning. The other thing is the place was extremely entrepreneurial and extremely initiative supportive. So you basically could just go and do anything and then uh, ask forgiveness for that. So this was a really big thing about asking forgiveness, not asking permission. And, and it was a place where you were encouraged to go and ask a lot of questions and uh, go kind of above and beyond. So I became a manager a one year after I joined there, right? So at age 23, I became <laughs> a manager at 25. I, I become a pretty significant group manager. So you get an opportunity to lead. All of that is simply by initiative, right? They look at the people that take initiative that look beyond what they are supposed to. We also, these programs were, these projects were very sophisticated in terms of integration. So kind of learning how to think at things at the, at the very high level has been uh, very critical for us. So for example, I'll give you an, an yeah. when, I in, when I interview engineers, and I actually don't do this as much as I like to or used to in the past, but when I used to, I always like to ask engineers, tell me about what you did. That's how I do it. So just tell me what you did. And we go into a conversation about what they did. And I ask them, so why did you do that? And why that was required? And a good engineer 
you can basically start about what they do. And then you can go and ask five, six questions outside of their responsibility. And they know that. They know the system. They know the product. They know the environment enough that they can provide you enough depth, five, six, seven questions out. On the other extreme, you have someone that will answer you within a question or two. Oh, that was outside of my scope. You know, I did that. That was outside of my scope. I don't know much about that. Or, you know, that was how it was decided. And there was nothing like that in this unit. So everyone uh, was encouraged to do that. And the whole place relied, because we moved extremely fast, the whole place relied on those people that would be, if you want, the glue between the puzzle pieces that will make the whole puzzle work. This puzzle was made in a way that was not meant to fit to each other. There were just pieces, and it was relying on people that will go beyond, above and beyond the role and will fill the gaps in between to make this whole thing work. So a lot of things that I learned and a lot of things about culture and about inspiration and empowerment and about initiative. So definitely this is the place that formed me more than any other job that I did in my life. Everything else was continuation for that. Are you still in touch? Have you kept in touch with a lot of those people that you went through this with? Absolutely. We have a WhatsApp group that I get messages daily. <laughs> it's awesome. It's just uh, incredible just because of, you know, the think back what you were doing and what you were doing at such a young age and the importance of it especially when you're dealing in terms of security. And it must make it seem like going and building big public companies now is, is nothing. I hate to say that in comparison, but tell me how, how did you discover or how did you really start to focus and build your business on 3D printing? How did that come about? Yeah. So, so I basically, when I came to the United States, I worked in large companies and uh, first in semiconductor, then in solar. And then when I finished uh, my work in first solar, I decided I want to start a company and I didn't know in what, but I was at the age and my kids were at the age and I was in the financial state that I could say, okay, I, I, I can take a risk. I can take a risk. Uh, my family is there with me now and my wife was with me importantly. And I started to think about where exactly am I going? And uh, and it so happened that I actually got approached by Costla Ventures. And Costla Ventures kind of uh, proposed to me to go and work with them. And I wanted to be an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence. And they said, well, Vinod actually said, Vinod Costla, why don't you just join us for a few years, be an investor, see how it is. Maybe you'll want to stay, maybe you'll want to start a company. I kind of suspected that I would want to start a company, but I said, okay. Let's, let's go and see how it works. And that was a great school for me because until that, I spent a lot of time in engineering and product development. I spent a, a lot around manufacturing, not in manufacturing, but around manufacturing and around operations. But I really didn't know much about any other part of the business, right? About finance, about uh, business, about, uh, about business strategy, about um, fundraising, about sales marketing, right? And I said, okay, that's great. And I got into that. And I basically spent two years mostly working with a lot of portfolio companies, but also looking at a lot of companies that we looked into investing, also made some investments myself as an investor. And uh, that was the best school you could have for entrepreneurs. So the, the, the 20 years or so of product development plus two years of being a, an investor were a fantastic school. And, and Costla Ventures is an amazing school for that because we know they're so visionary. And he's surrounded by such a great people that this was really great. And he is also not only visionary, but he is also very clear, um, if you want, guidelines about how to think about investment and how to think about entrepreneurs. And, and, uh, and he filters very quickly. So I learned a lot this, in this period. And I learned a lot about startups and about business and about mistakes that you don't want to make. And one of the things that I learned 
and I made a vow on this, is that I will never invest in a 3D printing company. And I actually decided never to invest in a 3D printing company because the information that I received from all the startups that came asking for money or pitching was, this is a great industry. This is a great technology. You can do that whatever you want. The only problem is cost. You need to drive the cost down. And here is a play to drive costs down by such and such factor. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it was by 30% and sometimes it was by 10 times mm-hmm. and sometimes it was by 70%. But there was all this play. And one of the things you see is that the industry is very fragmented. There's a lot of technology. Each one each is doing something slightly different. And then there are tens of plays to reduce cost. And I already was an investor in Clinton by that time. And I, I spent a lot of time in solar. And I could see that in an industry where there are tons of startups that everyone is working to reduce cost is an industry where no one is going to make money in because everyone is like falling on each other and everyone is disrupting each other. And no one will actually, it's very difficult to get to scale where you can actually get the, the cost benefit because in the beginning, everything is more expensive, right? Only when you get to scale, things become cheaper. So I kind of look at that and I said, hmm, I don't know, that doesn't sound like the right industry. And then um, we invested in a company that has been building rockets. And they have been designing and building their rocket engines using 3D printing. And it turned out that the parts that they wanted to design were non-manufacturable. So all the parts that they were making, they were very small parts in the, at the beginning. It took them a few months to make, even though they were you could hold them in the palm of your hand. And I was like, wait a second. I saw the whole thing about 3D printing. It. You can print parts overnight. You make the part, you go home, and in the morning you have the part. That wasn't at all how this thing was. The people wanted to make parts, but the parts were non-manufacturable. They had to basically go and redesign the parts, tweak them, compromise the design until they got something that they needed. And so I said, wait a second. I want to see if this is a problem with this company or if this is a problem with the industry. And I started to talk with other users that have been using the technology. And uh, to me, the most kind of uh, the, the point where everything is sank and the, basically I said, yeah, I'm doing this was I had a meeting with SpaceX and I had eight engineers around the table. We talked about this, this topic and we talked about how they are doing and what they're using it for and everything. And then at the end, I was like, okay, I want to understand you know, the bottom line. You're doing these designs, you're making 3D printing, you're making parts, you're making engines with 3D printing. How limiting are the existing capabilities of the manufacturing technology to you? You know, We talked about the limitations, how big of a deal it is. And they said like this, they said 70% of our parts, we print first shot, no problem easy. About 20-25% of our parts take us two, three iterations. We figure out how to make tweaks on them so that we can print them and make them a little challenge. And then about maybe 5% of our parts, we have to spend, we spend up to a quarter, three months. We play, we play, we try, we change. And after three months, we give up on them and we move on to something else. So I said, okay, so for this customer, I wrote in, in my notebook in Hebrew, for this customer, the solution of the limitation of the manufacturing technology is a very limited marginal value. As I was writing that, one of the engineers in the other side of the room kind of says, you know, you have to understand something. He said, we have been 3D printing rocket engines for more than five years now. You will wake up any one of us in the middle of the night and you'll show them a part. They can tell you without putting glasses on if this part will print or not successfully. So the reason why we have this distribution is because we know what will not print successfully and we avoid those designs. He said, had we had the capability to make this 5% of the parts, 100% of the parts would be like that. We don't do that because there's no capability to do that. But 
it's not there is no need. So I was like, okay, I got it. That's what I'm going to do. I didn't know how am I going to do it, but I knew that that's what we were going to do because there was a clear market problem here. And not only that, it was a market problem that everyone was missing. Because when you talk to everyone, no one told you that that's the problem. When, and when you ask them, so is it really a problem? People are like, yeah, it is a problem, but there's nothing you can do about this. It's kind of like when you ask people that are overweight, no one tells you gravity is too high. You know, G is too high. It's like, that's not, it's like gravity is gravity. It is what it is. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Are you constantly finding yourself with 50 tabs open a day, hopping between tools just to do your job? Notion is the most customizable tool that helps teams organize information, manage projects, and get more work done together, all in one place. More than 70% of teams that use Notion stop using two or more tools because they didn't need them anymore. With powerful integrations, an API, and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and context switching that slow companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users, creating templates, tutorials, and new inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need. Learn more and get started for free at notion.com slash how success happens. That's notion.com slash how success happens to help you take the first step toward an organized, happier team today. And our next sponsor, Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa Business Card and Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa Business Card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa a network working for everyone. And we're back. You found the opportunity. You had that light bulb moment. How do you then go from that point right there and say, even even after you'd been extremely successful in your career, how did you go from that point and say, I am going to start this business? And was it challenging just to get it going and get it off the ground? So, uh, my wife again. <laughs> she, 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 she's a. I have actor. the same problem, by the way. <laughs> it's not a. It's not a problem. <laughs> it's absolutely not a problem. But my wife, she basically said, "You have six months of playing with this thing. If you don't find money, you go and get a job." So, so that was the first uh, step. You know, basically, you had concrete thing you had to accomplish, right? You have a very clear. And the second thing is, I didn't have the courage to do it alone. So there was a guy that I worked with a few times in the past. His name is Ariel Milstein, and we founded the company together. So I basically I convinced him to join. 
and we founded the company together. And he's a very brilliant physicist, very brilliant technical person and system engineer. And we invented it together. When we started, we didn't know exactly how we were going to do it. We wrote some bullshit PowerPoints about you know, what we're going to do. This is a classical example of how you don't know what you're going to face completely. And uh, we raised uh, money. And the, the truth is we raised money from a lot of people that knew me and that trusted me and trusted my reputation. So we basically got seed money and we started going. And uh, the first, and we, we had seed money and the first few months were grueling. So first, the first, oh, this whole stage that we were in seed. So first we were completely wrong about what we thought the, the technical problem is that we need to solve and how to go about that. It took us about two months to figure that we were wrong. So we learned that we were wrong. We didn't know what we were talking about. But in three months, we already quite knew quite a lot about what we were talking about. But well, we still knew. Now we knew what the problem is, but we had no idea what the solution is. The second thing is we had money for about 12 months, maybe 15 months. And every week, I felt exactly the same, the same way. Every week on Monday, I looked at what we have to, to do, and I got into a depression. It looked like there's so much to do. There's so little time to do. I really, I don't really know what's the problems. In many cases, I hardly know what the, what the problem, but I definitely don't know what the solution is. And then by Friday, we solved the problem. We solved something and you go home with a euphoria. It's like, yeah, nothing can stop us. And that was like every week, every Monday, you go into a depression and every Saturday you go accelerated with a sense of euphoria. So the first few years were very, very hard because we were basically on the edge of extinction and it was extremely, extremely, extremely challenging. I love that because for every entrepreneur who's out there and knows that feeling, no matter the business and talking to major businesses like your own and across the board, that feeling of the roller coaster of we're done, this is finished to you're on top of the world and then right back down. And it's such an incredible thing to note. Most people see you or they see successful entrepreneurs, they think it's, you know, it's a, it's a rocket ship and uh, <laughs> there's so many challenges. It's, it's always great to hear. What do you think it was? It's hard waking up. I've been there as an entrepreneur every Monday, knowing you're facing it again. And, and, you know, hopefully you'll get to that Friday. What do you think it was internally? Was it something internally in you, your partner that was able to get you off the mat and just keep moving forward? It's actually a really good question. And I think that different entrepreneurs are, are different about in terms of what is their driver, right? What is their source of energy? I definitely never did that for money. And I definitely never did that for power uh, or control. I kind of think of myself as a, almost as an artist. I'm really poor anything artistic, right? I cannot rhyme. I cannot you know, saying I cannot do music, I cannot paint, but I kind of thought that problem solving is my expression, is how I find happiness in, in doing something for myself out. And for me, you get into these problems and you're sucked into these problems and you basically forget about the context. It's like, okay, what will happen if this is not going to work? Okay, let's just work on that. So if you can disconnect from what will happen if it's not going to work and just focusing on let's make it work, it's a very, very relaxing, very calming state. You almost get into a meditative state. So for me, it always was like, okay, yeah, I got it. We have all these problems. Let's not think about this. Let's just think about how we solve them instead of what will happen if we don't solve them. Uh, yeah, I love that because it's so 
important. I've learned this over the years, just even recently of staying in the process in the moment and not catastrophizing and thinking six months down the road, you lose money, you're going to lose all your money and you're going to be done. And if you're able to do that and you're able to pick yourself up every Monday and go through it through Friday, things will happen like they did for you. And was, was there a moment has there even been a moment, even though you guys have grown tremendously and gone public, was there a moment when you were like, you know what, we've created a really good business here. And I actually feel comfortable that this is going to be hugely successful. We're successful. I can tell you if there moment, if such a moment exists, it's still in the future. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I love that because every entrepreneur I talk to, and even if they've like, you know, it's like, I guess it's just not part of the entrepreneurial mindset, you know, that, Hey, you know what, Ooh, we're a success and I'm going to go, you know, on the beach and, you know, this will all work out. And I can tell you that we were twice almost bankrupt. Right. So twice I had uh, money for between one and two paychecks. In one case, it was for one more paychecks. In another case, it was for two more paychecks. Right. I had um, VCs that were quarreling. I had debt to banks and debt to suppliers. And I had a VC that told me, no, don't worry about this. We'll support you. And the only question is, what are the terms? So there were quite a few times that it looked really, really dark. It looked like this is the end. So, um, if you ask me, where are the times that it looked very close to be the end? The answer is much more obvious than where are the times that it looked like you made it. What we are trying to do is so hard, is still hard in the, into the future, that I don't feel at all like we cleared all the debris and the road is paved and you can just put 90 miles an hour and just drive. So this is not how it is. You still... There is still a lot of problems. There is still a lot of existential problems. There's still a lot of business and technical and operational problems that we have to solve. So I definitely don't feel like we've done that. It's like, yeah, every step that we have accomplished is like, okay, now we can have the resources to go and to get closer to our vision. And in terms of even the entire industry and 3D printing, has that been something for people who are not on the inside and even just when you're approaching new clients, is that something you're still having to educate people on? Is that part of what the job is now? So a big part of our job is to educate customers, but it's actually to uneducate customers. So what it means is that for a very long time, people knew the limitations of 3D printing and they made decisions based on the knowledge of those limitations. And now we basically said, well, there is much less limitations than you actually thought. You can do much more than you thought. And that opens the space to do things that you couldn't do before. So in a very important way, we are trying to focus on business opportunities where no one else can address well. So if other people think they can do that, we tell them, okay, just go and do that. We prefer not to participate in competitive war opportunities where other people can do that. Uh, we prefer to to really help in a, in a profound, impactful way to customers. So uh, when we when we go and we do this, we try to find how we can help. And very often we need to educate customers about what is possible, what is possible and why what people told them in the past was true, but the world has changed. And that's a, a very important learning for me because as, a, as an engineer, four years ago, I could prove in math why this company will never need marketing. 
And today I understand, and I had a good friend that tried to explain that to me four years ago, that marketing is just education. You just educate people. You're not trying to sell them anything. You just educate people. You teach them about things that would be valuable for them, that you can do for them. And uh, this is really what marketing is about. Now I understand that. And uh, spending time with people, both in a way that is focused, as well as in a way that is broader, is very critical for people to understand that there's more out there. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.